uh, the gold insert that you'll find in the service folder. Uh, you're very much invited to take that out and uh, to use it if it can be a blessing. I'm also invited to take it home as uh, there's a little Bible study on the back side. As we are in the sixth and, and second to last week of this series, um, I'm really hoping and praying that this series about values has been a blessing to you maybe in your personal life. If you've never thought about having set values for how you live your life and how you follow God's direction for your life, a great practice to have. Um, it's also a good thing, I pray, uh, as, uh, as people of this church to get to a little bit, know a little bit more about our church and why we do what we do, whether you are new or old, a member or a guest. This week is one of those values that is going to, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, challenge us, uh, especially those of us like me who've been in church all our lives. And I, God is going to challenge us through this uh, lesson in Acts, and he's going to, I believe, direct us to being outward focused. But before we get to that lesson, I kind of want to make sure that we're all on the same page when it comes to this value. And to do that, um, I wanted to uh, share with you uh, a little uh, account or a story uh, concerning one of my favorite restaurants. Um, it's called uh, Chipotle. Um, raise your hand if you've ever been to Chipotle before. And raise them proudly. I mean, it's a good... That, all right, there we go. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good place. And um, actually, one of the family traditions that has kind of come about, it's not an every week thing, but most weeks, is that on Sundays in about, uh, you know, a half hour or so, my car will leave from here and not go home. It'll go to Chipotle. I'm in charge of getting all the food and then bringing it home so that uh, uh, neither Carrie nor I need to, uh, to make or cook or whatever. So that's kind of our one day a week that we kind of get some food and, and we go there. Well, if you've ever gone to Chipotle during lunch, and especially lunch on the weekend, you'll know that you don't just walk up to the cash register. There's always a line. And in, in many weeks, even if it's snowing, and it might be today, that you actually are standing outside the store as if it's like Black Friday or something, waiting to get in the store to, to order. So you're waiting there 15, 20 minutes or so, just kind of bored, checking you know, football scores on your phone and things like that. When you get to the front, though, and the cashier asks, what you want, and what type of rice, and what type of beans, it, it totally changes. It's like you go from this waiting, and, and maybe it's just me, but to this feeling like you're in a 100-meter dash, and you need to go as quickly as you can. Some people are nodding their heads. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And I don't know why this is. Is it because there's all these people behind you? Is it because the workers are so frantically getting the stuff together? I don't know why. But there's this change that happens, and you have to seemingly rush through the line to the cash register. Now, this doesn't bother me anymore because I know the routine, I know the menu, I know what I want. And in some ways, um, although I don't hold a membership card, you could kind of call me a Chipotle insider, okay? But it wasn't always that way. In fact, 
The very first time we ever went to Chipotle, our whole family went. We had four kids at the time. They're, uh, you know, three, four years younger. And we waited for 15 to 20 minutes. And, you know, we try to keep, you know, four young kids occupied for 15 to 20 minutes. In line was enough difficulty of its own. And then we got to the front. And I didn't know there was a 100-meter dash waiting for me, nor did Carrie. So she keeps, the uh, cashier asks us all these questions. We have no idea. In fact, we have more questions than we have answers. And at the very same time, it's seemingly the insiders behind us waiting in line are looking at this outsider family wondering what's their deal. They have no idea what they want. And I'm starting to sweat. It was a horrible experience. I didn't even really know by the end what I had ordered. Yeah, that. And I'll be honest, the only reason we went back, true story, is because the manager knew this was our first time and they gave us two free meals. Otherwise, I don't know if we would have gone back at all. Now, we felt like outsiders. All the insiders knew what was going on. This happens at restaurants. Probably happens at your place of work. An insider culture a certain traditions, certain language or vocabulary that people at your place of work know, but if someone like me came into your place of work, I'd be so confused. The truth is, this happens everywhere people are gathered, and it happens also in churches. You see, God has called us to a very simple message and a simple purpose, to share the message of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, with the people of your church and with the world. And yet what happens is, and this is just natural, what happens is, is that groups of people start to form routines and traditions and, and, and a culture forms and insider language happens. And the thing is, when it comes to insiders versus outsiders, the natural tendency, when there's insiders and outsiders, the natural tendency at church will always just naturally be towards insiders. It just is natural. And the reason why are, are twofold. The first reason is that all the ministries are planned and all the events are scheduled and, and all the decisions are made by who? Insiders or outsiders? Insiders, right? And so, of course, we gravitate towards that which we are thinking, okay? The other reason, probably in this sense, has a little more of a sinful tinge to it, and that is, naturally, sinfully, we are most easily focused on self. Uh, the way that I like to say it is that my number one idol in my life is spelled B-E-N, and the number one idol in your life is spelled however you spell your name. We don't have to teach our kids or our, our associates, our, our employees, or, or our coworkers to think about themselves, okay? We do that naturally, and it is by the grace of God if we don't, right? And, and so this idea of being self, our self-interests and potentially being self-centered and, and thinking about ourselves there's also a sinful aspect to that that we daily have to fight against, not just at church, everywhere in life, in our families, in our schools, in our places of work, to think about, to love others as Jesus commanded, even more than we love ourselves. So we have these two dynamics. 
And why this is something that we should talk about is because being inner-focused or insider-focused sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes, can butt up against God's clear purpose for what he wants us to do as his followers. That sometimes this natural tendency to focus on me first can butt up against God's direction for us. Like what direction? Well, I mentioned one already, like loving others more. Not just your husband, not just your kids. It just says your neighbor as yourself. It can butt up against God's calling to take what we know and to go share it with others. You know what the easiest thing to do is? And sometimes people have this mentality. <laughs> I'm good. I'm saved. Just kind of kick back and work a little and wait till it's time to go to heaven. Now, while that is a way to think, it's not the way God has called us. He said, you're light, you're salt, and so we have a mission and a purpose. Now, is this insider-outsider tension only a 21st century problem? As I alluded to at the beginning of the service, it wasn't. In fact, as I said, the very first congregational meeting was to solve a problem over this very issue. Who should be led into the church? How should church look, so to speak? Who are insiders? Who are outsiders? What does that mean? And as we look at it, a little bit of background is needed. Um, this council or congregational meeting happened about 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. So we're in the first century. And since the time that Jesus rose, uh, missionaries, people with names like Paul and Barnabas and Peter, they had gone and taken the message from Israel, from Jerusalem, and started to help make it spread across the then known world. And so the church was growing thousands on one day even, called Pentecost. The church was growing. People were coming to know Jesus as their Savior. They, they received the, the great hope and blessing that comes with salvation through, through Jesus' work. But as it grew and went outside of Jewish Israel, problems arose. Because as the, the church grew, people of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, Different tradition, different ideas started to join the church. And all of this boiled over into the first large church disagreement that, that needed some help with um, um, Paul and Barnabas deciding to travel to Jerusalem to fi figure this out. Now, as I, I read the first verse of this, I, I'll, I'll say that I want you to listen closely to the requirement they had on those joining the church, and uh, I think it might surprise you. Verse 1, some men, believers, came down from Judea, that is Israel, to Antioch on the outskirts of Israel, and were teaching the brothers, the Christians, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by men, you cannot be saved. Now, I'm not going to just quickly gloss over that because we need to think about this. You think that uh, maybe having people take a three-month starting point class at Bethlehem is a big requirement to joining the church, okay? 
In the early church in the first century, they required a surgery. And if you wanted to join the church, guys, you had to have a procedure. And I can just imagine how great this was for, you know, church membership. Yeah, honey, um, why don't you go to church today? I still got to really think about this before I decide to uh, take that plunge and join the church. And this was a really big issue in the Christian church. And this was a big issue because it affected who would be a part of the church. It was a bigger issue because they were even saying that unless you had this done, you could not even be saved. Now, where does this come from? Because it seems so strange uh, if, if you're new to the Bible or new to this part of the Bible. Um, in the Old Testament, for the Jewish nation, this was a part of what it meant to be a Jew, that God asked them in a special way to set Jewish men apart or Jewish boys apart to, to do this. But when Jesus came, he fulfilled all those Mosaic laws, all those laws of the Old Testament, and no longer was this something that people needed to do. And in fact, the way that these Judaizers or these Jewish people were teaching it, it actually took away from the grace of Jesus. It took away from God's full, free forgiveness through Jesus, and it put a requirement on something that you needed to do in order to be in the church or be a part of God's family. And so as you can imagine, Paul and Barnabas, they took issue with this. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So they were appointed, along with some other believers, to go from Antioch to Jerusalem for this congregational meeting to see the apostles and elders about this question. So they traveled to Jerusalem. The topic, who should be a part of the church? Verse 5. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So we have this group of Pharisees. The Pharisees were a people who were very, very much attached to the laws of the Bible. And they were wanting this to be a requirement along with faith for people who would be a part of the church and a part of God's family. So verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this topic, this question. After much discussion, Peter, that is the, the same Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he got up and addressed the group. Brothers, you, oh, I'm sorry, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And I just need to pause there a second. Because Peter says, you know that some time ago. A little bit of homework for you. This week, if you wanted to read Acts chapter 10, it'll give you a fuller, um, the full account of what I'm going to share with you. But in the Old Testament, God had a bunch of rules. Circumcision was one of them. Another one was there were certain foods you could eat and certain foods you couldn't eat. The foods that God followers could eat were called unclean, and the foods that they could eat were called clean. So this all changed once Jesus came and fulfilled all the law and all those Mosaic or those Old Testament laws weren't needed anymore. So in this vision, that Peter has a vision, and in the vision, there's this big 
well, blanket of food that gets put in front of Peter, both of clean food and unclean food. And God says, Peter, all that had been unclean, I've now made clean. Basically, don't worry about those laws. It's all good. Eat whatever you'd like. Now, Peter probably thought that was the end of it. But right after that vision, some guys showed up at his house. And they were friends of a Gentile. You know what a Gentile is? Um, this is insider language. A Gentile is someone who's not a Jew. So everyone's either Jews or Gentiles. If you're from the family of Abraham, you're a Jew. If you're not like me, you're a Gentile. So some Gentiles came to Peter's home and said, God told us to come here and to bring you, Peter, to the home of a, a man, a Gentile named Cornelius. And in chapter 10, we see Peter going to the home of Cornelius, and while he's there and sharing the message of Jesus, it becomes very clear that God is there, that God is blessing these Gentiles' people, even though they're not Jews. And towards the end of this section, Peter kind of thinks back to his vision. And in chapter 10, verse 34, he says, I now realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism of nationality, of background, but instead accepts men or people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And so in that vision that God had given to Peter, and he's referencing it here, God taught him to not think about people the way he used to, Jew and Gentile. They're all clean through the grace of Jesus. And so this is a perfect opportunity for Peter to remind the group of that. Verse 8. God who knows the heart. Notice what Peter references. Not a surgery, not a nationality, not a certain, you know, culture, but references the heart. Belief. Showed that he accepted Gentiles by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he made, did to us. God made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts through faith. And now Peter has something to tell these men as they consider this issue. Now then, why do you try to test God? Why are you going against what God has clearly said by putting on the necks of these Gentile disciples a yoke, a burden, that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. Um, Peter's kind of calling their bluff, and, and he's, he, he's basically telling them, guess what? You guys are holding these Gentiles to a higher standard than what you've been able to keep. Yes, you men, you might be circumcised, but have you kept the whole Mosaic law perfectly? No. And yet you're a part of God's family, you're holding these new Christians who are just learning, who are, in that sense, more immature in their faith, to a higher standard than us, who are mature, long-time God followers, can even keep. Does that make any sense? Verse 11. No. We believe it's through the grace of Jesus, our Lord Jesus, that we're saved, just as they the Gentiles are. And so in this discussion, 
Peter takes a very complicated church culture and he narrows it down to the simple message of salvation by grace. How do you become a part of God's family? It's not how you look. It's not a surgery that you have. It's not the, who your mama was or your daddy was. It is grace. That anyone who believes in Jesus has the benefits of Jesus' forgiveness. Not what we do, but what Jesus has done for us. Right after Peter says this in the meeting, Paul and Barnabas stand up. It's kind of like Mission Sunday, Mission Festival Sunday. They get up and they start telling missionary stories about how God's been working with the Gentiles and all the things that have been going on, about how God's been blessing their work. And then right after that, James stands up. And James was the half-brother of Jesus. His mother was Mary, his dad was Joseph. So a half-brother to Jesus, whose mother was Mary and whose father was God, right? And he stands up and he has something to say that is at the crux of this value at Bethlehem. That I don't know if there is anywhere in the Bible that is better articulated. It might be just as well articulated, but I don't know if any better articulated than what James' words say towards the end of his speech. And we're going to skip ahead to that phrase. Verse 19. It is my judgment, James's judgment, therefore. Therefore, based on what Paul and Barnabas have been saying, based on what Peter is saying, based on what the Old Testament is saying, it is my judgment, therefore, that we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Sit. That we who are mature, who know Jesus as our Savior, should not make it difficult for those who are new for those who are immature, for those who are just learning, for the Gentiles who are turning to God, not by our customs, not by our traditions, not by our insider language, not by our insider culture, but we should do whatever we can to make it easy for them. Should we compromise the gospel? That's the one thing we cannot do that we will not compromise the message that we've been given, that we will not com compromise the simple message of salvation by grace. And, and the message of the gospel can be offensive to people. To a world that likes the idea of working towards that which they'll receive, the message of salvation by grace and how much we need someone to help us can be offensive. We're not going to compromise that. But anything beyond the simple message of the truth Let's not make it hard for those who are new to the faith and new to Jesus. I think more than any of the other values, this is a value when people glob onto it that can more than anything else affect a church culture, at least from my experience. It's one, being an insider myself, that I need to continually test my heart. Are we doing what we're doing as a church just because we've always done it that way or because it's the best way? Are we make it easier or harder for people who are new? Um, 
One of my prayers is that this is a church where people who are brand new to Bethlehem, to church, or to Jesus can come and feel comfortable and feel as if they understood what was going on, that we did not make it complicated. Well, along with that, one of my prayers is that every member of this congregation, when they know someone who doesn't know Jesus, would not hesitate for a moment to invite their friend to Bethlehem. Now, does that happen all the time? Maybe not. We have work to do yet. But that is the goal. That is the vision. That people who are insiders or people who are outsiders, they would feel comfortable. Maybe not by the gospel, because we need to be true to the gospel, but by the environment, by the culture, are we making it easy for people who are turning to God? Now, in closing, this isn't always easy, as I shared at the beginning. This is a, a very challenging thing for us in, in all areas of life. But here's what I would challenge you. At home, when there's a fight between our kids down in the basement, and I don't know what went on, and I'm trying to, you know, piece it together. Almost every time, my older kids get a little more of the responsibility in it than my younger ones. Not because they're always more at fault, but because with maturity and with age comes more responsibility. When our kids are young, they do that wet noodle thing when they don't want you to pick them up and they, or they're upset and they just fall to the ground and make their body and limbs all limp. You do that when you're immature. What would happen if you did that at work when you didn't like what the boss said? Sometimes you feel like doing that, I know. But that would not fly because as we grow, we mature, and the waywardness of our, or the immaturity of our younger years needs to grow into maturity. My friends, if we are not making it easy or for those who are turning to God, who will? We, who may not be where we want to be yet in the maturity of our faith, are certainly more mature, are more understanding of God's direction to love others as a reflection of how he's loved us. We understand grace better than those who are brand new. So may we, as lights, share it. Not always easy, but what an awesome opportunity God has given us. And to that end, let's pray.